All right, for a moment, we're not going to talk about President Joe Biden. We're going to talk about former President Joe Biden. For those four years from 2017 to 2021, where he was ostensibly a private citizen, yet making obscene <laughs> amounts of money at various no-show jobs. Now, one of them was at the University of Pennsylvania. They gave him an office in Philadelphia, an office in Washington, D.C., and Joe Biden may have left some classified documents in one of those offices. CBS News broke the story tonight. It's a federal case. Three sources tell CBS News the classified documents were discovered in this building about a mile from the White House at the offices of the Penn Biden Center, a foreign policy research institute set up after President Biden left the vice presidency. According to a source familiar with the matter, the classified documents are small in number and were found in November in a box among unclassified material. Sources would not characterize how sensitive the documents are. Responding to requests from CBS News, the White House counsel said that on November 2nd of last year, before the midterm elections, lawyers for President Biden were cleaning out office space at the center. When they discovered the documents marked classified in a locked closet, they stopped the work and contacted the White House. White House lawyers then reached out to the National Archives, which is responsible for the records. The archives in turn contacted the Department of Justice. Attorney General Merrick Garland then tasked the U.S. Attorney in Chicago, John Lausch, a Trump appointee, with determining what is in the documents and how they arrived at the Penn Biden Center. Well, according to the left, this is a high crime, and obviously Joe Biden is ineligible not only to be president, but certainly he can't run for president in this situation. Where have I heard that before? Yes, Mar-a-Lago, right? Who remembers August 8th, 2022, last year when the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago to find these documents? Now, unlike Joe Biden, former vice president, I don't think vice presidents have declassification authority presidents do. That's a major distinction. But remember how self-righteous Joe Biden was when this came out? Joe Biden. Remember, he's essentially been accused of the same thing. Listen to what he said about Donald Trump. When you saw the photograph of the top secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago, what did you think to yourself looking at that image? How that could possibly happen, how one, anyone could be that irresponsible. And I thought, what data was in there that may compromise sources and methods? By that, I mean names of people who helped, or et cetera. And it's just uh, totally irresponsible. What a condemnation. How that could possibly happen. Totally irresponsible. Joe Biden accused of essentially doing the same thing, apparently admitting to it almost. This puts a whole new paint job on everything. You know, this morning I woke up and I asked around, is Joe Biden really going to be the nominee of the Democrats in 2024? I mean, take a look at him. This, it seems like totally not like it, it shouldn't be happening. He's 80 years old. He can't make it through a press conference. The administration's been a disaster. Yet he's going to be the nominee. I think this document thing may be a game changer, especially how they condemn Trump. Right now, the White House, they're feeling somewhat confident. I don't know right this minute, but yesterday, they were busy concentrating on nobody running against Joe Biden. 
And so far, nobody of consequence is going to run against Joe Biden. I'm talking about on the Democrat side. And every time we have a one-term president, what does that president face? A serious primary challenge. Jimmy Carter had to deal with Ted Kennedy in 1980. Jimmy Carter went on to lose, of course, to Ronald Reagan. 1992, George H.W. Bush uh, faced a primary challenge from Pat Buchanan, um, was able to you know, dispatch that finally. But, of course, he lost to Bill Clinton. A serious primary challenge weakens you for the general election. Everybody knows that. Uh, right now, no one is emerging to take on Joe Biden. That's kind of surprising, especially, especially given the record. I'm sorry, but a man who thinks that drag queens belong in schools, reading to kids, this is, uh, <laughs> this is an agenda that I'd certainly like to run against. How about somebody who calls peaceful riots peaceful protests? This is somebody who's totally out of touch. Somebody who believes that January 6th was worse than September 11th, 2001, that we don't have a crime problem on our hands in America, uh, or that we did not lose a war in Afghanistan, and that Ukraine, well, we didn't basically give a green light to Vladimir Putin. All these things happened, yet somehow Joe Biden is considered strong for re-election. Maybe in a parallel universe. And I really mean that. Who saw Star Trek? Remember when they all beamed down to uh, the alternative universe? There was a malfunction in the transporter, right? Spock met his counterpart, the evil Spock, and Kirk had one as well. Everything that was right was wrong. Everything that was bad that was good, good, bad. Everything was backwards. And if Joe Biden is able to run for re-election, it's either totally backwards, everything is bizarre world, or they've got it rigged. Joe Biden has a great big open border, and they seem fine with that. They seem fine with that. You know what happened this weekend, of course. He finally went to the border, and some moments I'd like to uh, highlight. Here he is arriving. He actually seemed like he was just enjoying himself, like this was relaxation for him. But he got schooled by the great Governor Abbott of Texas. He was waiting for him, and this was no uh, polite meet-and-greet. And it's the governor's responsibility to tell Joe like it is, and he did. The governor handed the president a letter, a five-point letter. And Joe uh, <laughs> was kind of flummoxed, didn't know how to handle the situation. Let's go through the five points that Governor Abbott outlined for the president. You must comply with the many statutes mandating that various categories of aliens shall be detained and end the practice of unlawfully paroling aliens en masse. You must stop sandbagging the implementation of the Remain in Mexico policy and Title IV expulsions and fully enforce those measures as the federal courts have ordered you to do. You must aggressively prosecute illegal entry between ports of entry and allow ICE to remove illegal immigrants in accordance with existing federal laws. You must immediately resume construction of the border wall in the state of Texas using the billions of dollars Congress has appropriated for that purpose, and you must designate the Mexican drug cartels as foreign terrorist organizations. If I were president, Governor Abbott, consider it done. But Joe is president, and uh, no, it's a game. It's a game. By the way, Governor Abbott was spectacular today. You know, right after a meeting with the president, he went over to see the press, and something interesting happened. So you've got Air Force One in the backdrop. And you got the great big presidential caravan. 
And here's Governor Abbott going to the reporters, making the case for what needs to be done. That is a man in the arena. And it was impressive to me. Take a look. The president could cause the chaos of the border needed to be here. It just so happens he's two years and about $20 billion too late. He needs to step up and, and take swift action, uh, including uh, reimbursing the state of Texas for the money that we spent, but providing more resources for the federal government to do its job. Could you make that out? It was strong. It was concise. It needs to be said. It's simple. It's understandable. Joe Biden folded the paper and basically didn't even say goodbye. There's something else that was kind of interesting about this moment. The big presidential caravan goes off. Uh, there is Governor Abbott talking to the press. And then there goes the presidential package. Now, I've actually been around Air Force One, and it's interesting. When it leaves, you kind of feel left out, like, wow, what a party. They've got all the power. We're just here amongst ourselves. I wish I could. The power, in a weird way, seemed to be with Governor Abbott, right? That's, that's where the action is, because we know Joe Biden doesn't really want to do anything, and this was on display. They literally took him to a dog and pony show. Uh, take a look at the dog. Joe Biden, I mean, we've all seen these kinds of demonstrations. This is what he went to the border for, to see a drug-sniffing dog? This is the kind of stuff you take a, uh, I don't know, I mean, when I went to my father's work when I was a kid, he was a police officer. This is the kind of stuff I saw as a kid. But as a president of the United States, dog and pony, the pony wasn't there, of course, after the, all the horrible things that Joe said about those uh, Border Patrol guys, they wouldn't show up. Anyway, it was from the uh, bomb-sniffing dog, the drug-sniffing dog, to the fentanyl detector, uh, all canned, all phony, and then bringing Joe Biden over like he's some, again, eight-year-old kid to look inside a truck. Take a look inside this truck, Joe. Isn't that interesting? And then it was time to say goodbye. Goodbye, Joe. That's it. Big check in the block. You saw the border. They don't appear to want to do a damn thing about it. Governor Abbott does. That plan is viable. That plan is practical. It is doable. And Joe won't. And guess what? Guess who the villain is in this exchange? Guess. Guess. If I'm the governor of a state that's asking for help from the federal government, the last thing I do is showboat, hand him a letter. What, what are we? What is this? Fifth grade? <laughs> hand him a letter. Here, Mr. President, I write you a letter. No, Greg Abbott's acting like a clown. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to fix anything. He just wants to hand out letters and then have press conferences. And it's all virtue signaling. It's all performance signaling. Wow. <laughs> I mean, put it in writing so he won't forget, right? Can't win with that fake news. And they are the worst. It's worse than fake. They're at war with the truth. And when we come back, my new book will meet the person to whom I dedicated this book, my very first. Justice for All, How the Left is Wrong About Law Enforcement, dedicated to my father, Raymond W. Kelly, the greatest police commissioner to ever serve. When we come back, Well, well, there it is. Can't believe it. I wrote a book. 
Uh, it's pretty exciting, actually. It was pretty hard. Justice for all, how the left is wrong about law enforcement. A couple of things that brought this book together. Well, it was during Black Lives Matter summer, and I saw the treatment of police, how they were disrespected, how they were demonized, and how the rioters were celebrated. You remember how bad it was, the rioting, and they told us these were peaceful protests. And then that riot was cleared up in front of the White House, and Donald Trump had the audacity to appear with a Bible in front of the White House. That did not strike me as unusual. I thought that was just fine. A Bible in front of a church near the White House? Well, you know what happened. That should have been a Black Lives Matter banner. That would have been fine. And then there was this moment when the military had something to say about this. And we should all be proud that the vast majority of protests have been peaceful. Peaceful protest means that American freedom is working. Yeah, General Milley's brain is not working. Something is very, very wrong with the military, with our country. So I sat down to write this book to set the record straight about Black Lives Matter, about the military, about cops, that they are the good guys, not the bad guys, and point out some things about Barack Obama that you may not know. So I dedicated the book, as you saw a moment ago, to uh, my father, Raymond W. Kelly. Uh, he was police commissioner, but way before he was police commissioner, he was a Marine, a United States Marine. He served a year in Vietnam. And then he came back, attended the police academy out of more than a thousand cadets, graduated number one. The trophy, by the way, was a was a pistol seen right there and spent um, decades in the police department serving in all kinds of commands. Just about any job you could have he had in the police department and ultimately became the longest serving police commissioner in the history of that department. Ray Kelly. Uh, welcome back to Newsmax. My father, by the way, once again, for the record. Hello, sir. Hi, Greg. Hey, congratulations on the book. It's absolutely terrific. I totally enjoyed it. And of course, thank you for saying so many nice things about me <laughs> for dedicating your book. All right. So it, it, it's really what a, what a piece of work. All right. Well, it's a pleasure. And thank you very much. And listen, I want to ask you about when you first became a police officer, in fact, even before you left the academy, they had you out on the streets in 1967 uh, patrolling riots, trying to quell riots. 1967 was quite a, a time of unease, big race riots across the country. I think we have some video. What was that time like? Well, I, I had been to Vietnam, so, I mean, I, I was used to uh, seeing some violence and, and being in danger, but it really was not the right thing to do. It took police cadets, uh, police recruits, who had been in the department for some of them only 10 days, and put them in blue uniforms, brought them to the pistol range, had them fire 50 rounds of ammunition, put them out in the street with an experienced police officer when bricks and cinder blocks were, were coming off the roof. It was, uh, it was not a smart thing to do today. That would never ever happened, but it was a different time in, in 1967, that's for sure. And back then, though, I think the authorities, i.e. everybody, the media, academia, uh, both parties, Republican and Democrat, thought that violence and rioting and looting was bad, was not a good thing to do. And now there seems to have been a complete shift 
the whitewashing of the Black Lives Matter riots, that somehow these were peaceful, beautiful events. This is the big difference, I believe, and we try to make the case in the book, between what we've seen in this country, 1967, 1992, uh, Rodney King. Those riots were condemned by the authorities, by the powers that be. These riots, for some reason, are embraced, are encouraged, and are sanctified. Yeah, that's uh, quite strange. You're absolutely right. You know, in the first day of rioting in New York City, 450 police officers were injured. And we have film of them being hit in the head with fire extinguishers. Uh, two lawyers tried to burn a radio car. They threw, uh, like, Molotov cocktails in it. And it was really a, a terrible scene and, and very, very frightening for uh, police involved in this, but absolutely, he got no reaction. The mayor even said, Mayor de Blasio, oh, go easy on it. You know, you know they, nobody was going easy on the cops. So, yeah, the, the world has changed in that regard where people don't seem to see fire behind them and damage to buildings and, and, and people uh, burning things uh, as, as, a, as a problem. And police officers, by the way, I mean, riot fighting a riot, quelling a riot, patrolling a riot. Granted, you had not much training back in 1967, but this is something that police do. This is called upon. You're going to probably have to deal with a riot, with a protest at some time in a law enforcement career. And that brings me to January 6th. I am still mystified as to how the Capitol Hill police, and we support law enforcement, but they seem to have let themselves be politicized and if we look at January 6th, um, somehow those officers, some of them think that patrolling a riot, that riot shouldn't have happened. Maybe it shouldn't have, but they still have a responsibility and a duty to respond. That's true. Uh, when I was a commissioner, we had disorder control training every day for some segment of the uh, department. Um, Mayor de Blasio stopped that training when he took office uh, after that. But, uh, yeah, disorder control and, and riotous situations are something that you sort of have to anticipate when you sign on for the job. That's just part of the, the world that you're entering. In my book, uh, I talk about Ashley Babbitt uh, because, quite frankly, people may tweet about her, uh, people may talk about her on the radio, but I kind of wanted to memorialize to a point her story in a book from a major publisher. And we talk about it. And to me, her shooting was completely unjustified. And I'd like to get you on the record, if you don't mind, uh, from your law enforcement perspective and vantage point. I think you have a, a term or a way to frame things, a good shooting or a bad shooting. Which one was this and why? Well, this would be considered a, uh, a bad shooting because there was no uh, immediate harm uh, that was going to come to the officer's uh, body. Uh, he was behind a door. Uh, it looks like the, uh, this young woman was not doing anything that would warrant her uh, being shot. So, uh, yeah, I think every, certainly every major police department in the country would look uh, very critically at that, at that shooting. Uh, I want to show you some statistics we have from the NYPD. Police officers are leaving uh, in, in droves. We have these from just a few. 
3,701 police officers have retired uh, last year, the most in 20 years, 32% more than the year before. Uh, number one, as a, as a former commissioner, if you were commissioner and that many police were leaving on your watch, what would that do for your ability, uh, your capacity to protect the city? Well, it's definitely impacting on the department's uh, ability to protect the city right now. There are uh, precincts that are turning out only one or two radio cars to be on uh, on patrol. Uh, it is really a critical situation. Uh, who's going to replace these these officers? And of course, you have to consider the amount of expertise that's going out the door. But they're having real problems in recruiting. Uh, new officers. They're going to have to look at the bonuses or some way of, of sweetening the, the pot because uh, uh, they're still having that problem. And by the way, it's a national problem, not just New York City, but because NYPD is the biggest. Uh, obviously, the numbers are uh, are high, but it's uh, it should be of great concern to uh, city fathers. The book is actually my book. It's Justice for All, How the Left is Wrong About Law Enforcement. We detail how we got to this crazy moment in American history and what we can do about it, how we can possibly get out of this horrible spot that we're in. And uh, I hope it adds to the conversation. I think it can make a difference. We confront race in a way that very few people uh, are willing to do, but it has to be done. Ray Kelly. To whom it's dedicated, we thank you. All right, great. Congratulations again. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, mom is mentioned in the book as well. I have not heard, uh, <laughs> uh, right? She is mentioned in the book positively a yes, little bit is, later. Of course. All right. Uh, many thanks, and we'll be right back. Well, that's last Friday, Joe Biden enjoying himself at yet another January 6th event. Two years later, Joe Biden telling ghost stories about January 6th, talking about this person who committed suicide, that person who scraped their knee, somebody else who died two days later of natural causes. No mention, of course, of Ashley Babbitt, the unarmed woman who was unjustifiably, totally, totally without justification shot by police and killed by police on January 6th. We've all seen the video. And uh, this should be a total and complete national outrage, what happened to her. And these cops just walking away about 30 seconds before she's shot. There they go. Ready? Well, let's go take a, take a break, guys. And there they go. And then all hell breaks loose. We are joined once again by our friend, uh, he was married to Ashley Babbitt, Aaron Babbitt, joining us from California. Aaron, welcome back to the show. How are you? January 6th has got to be a tough uh, tough day for you. What's it like? Yeah, J6 is always tough. I mean, I've had two of them now at this point. I said last year that that was going to be the first of the last without Ashley. So I, I stayed busy. Um, I did notice one thing, though. With this, uh, everybody getting their voices back on Twitter, uh, there was a lot more positivity going around about Ashley with these heavy hitters with a with a with a longer reach. So that was that was a good thing. Excellent. Yes, people are for a long time. It was uh, not many, and I've seen that myself. More people are talking about her, demanding justice. 
Now, look, there, there have been reports over the past couple of years that you are at least contemplating a lawsuit against the federal government. Those are very tough to wage. Suing the federal government is not easy. Um, these things are usually delicate. What can you tell us, if anything, about your legal plans regarding this, what seems to me, and almost everybody else, an unjustified killing? It looks like you have got a great case. Yeah, I, I have not gone away. Um, I've just been quiet. Um, I obviously separated from my last attorney. Uh, once he terminated his representation for me, with me, I knew I was going to have to, I wanted to take my time and uh, find the uh, formidable force that Ashley needs. I have found that. Um, so stay tuned. That's all I can tell you. It'll be coming soon. Um, well, good luck and please keep us posted. There's one thing I believe that you would like um, that Ashley Babbitt was illegally denied in death, and that would be a military funeral or military recognition of her service. And as a veteran who was discharged honorably, she was entitled to military honors uh, at a funeral, and she was denied them rather unceremoniously, quite unceremoniously. And I believe that's either illegal or definitely against regulations. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I received a very gracious gift from my brother. Um, he gave me a, a flag uh, case. Um, and I, I promise you and everybody listening right now, I will be presented a flag by the United States Air Force, and I will fill that case. I'd grab it for you right now, but I'd have to get off camera. No, I, I understand. And by the way, could you tell us a little bit about her service? Yeah, she served 14 years total, um, eight, eight active, um, four trips overseas in defense of our nation. And then she went on to join the National Guard. Um, she, she would have stayed in and retired, but we started a relationship shortly after that. And uh, she decided she didn't want to leave me or her dog and go on a fifth deployment again. So, so she got out and we moved here to California. By the way, um, I'm not sure if you saw this, but Bernie Carrick, the former police commissioner, uh, spoke before the July 6th committee in an interview. And there's a reason why they don't release the entire videotape, because these guys, some of these witnesses are fantastic. So they selectively release little clips. But he called them out over the death of Ashley Babbitt. And I'm not sure if you saw the reply. Uh, he said this was totally unjustified. You guys are lawyers. You have to understand that. And no one's talking about it. And they were all flummoxed. And one of them said, well, you got to understand, people were saying, hang Mike Pence. And the members of Congress were just trying to do their jobs. It's really astounding to me that they would try to justify her killing because a quarter mile away, somebody else was saying, hang Mike Pence. The justification, when they try to justify what happened to her, they have to use emotionalism. They have to say these crazy things. But on the, on the legal side... I, I think they're not on solid ground. And again, I think you got a great case here. Yeah, it's just, it's grasping for straws. I mean, that's all it is. I think Bernie, you know, because Bernie got to sit in front of them. You know, I think your dad, your dad, you know, I heard your dad talking last, this, this last go around. It's all it's law enforcement in general, Greg. I mean, I was just in a car going down to do a hit for another network on January 6th. And they had this big burly ex cop Marine sitting there, you know, he had name recognition. And he turned around and he just told me how sorry he was and how awful of a shooting that was. And he agreed, too. So, it's, I mean, it's at the top, down to the bottom, rank and file. These police know that it wasn't justified. By the way, in the executive summary of the January 6th report, Ashley Babbitt is mentioned in a peculiar way, in my opinion. 
Take a look at this. At some point after 3.05 p.m. that afternoon, President Trump's chief of staff and President Trump himself were informed that someone had been shot. It goes on to say that person was Ashley Babbitt, who was fatally shot at 2.44 p.m. as she and other rioters tried to gain access to the House chamber. Now, this is the executive summary, which is several hundred pages long. And the, the strange thing to me is they don't mention who shot her. If they don't want to mention the no. name of the officer, fine, whatever. We know who it was, Lieutenant Michael Byrd. But they don't even mention the, <laughs> the department. They don't. I found that just very strange. A person was shot. By whom, they don't say. And who is Ashley Babbitt? She's just a name, Ashley Babbitt. Did, did, yeah. did you notice that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I noticed that. I mean, they, they don't want to put his name. You know, his name's been out there, but they still don't want to recognize it. You know, thank God for the good, great people at Judicial Watch. I don't know if anybody wants to go to the website and take a look, but, you know, they just uncovered like 31 pages of them hiding him at Joint Base Andrews for like five or six months. I mean, it's just, it's disgusting, but I'm just so used to this point. I, I don't get shocked or surprised by any of it. I just keep pushing forward, man. Very briefly, there are a lot of conspiracy theories out there and people are scratching their heads about what happened and why it happened. Do you have any theories? I mean, is this what it looked like, an unjustified shooting by one cop or was there something more going on? I mean, I, I, I was sitting on my couch watching this all go down like everybody else did. I, I have to just imagine that it was just one poorly trained officer. That's, that's what I'm going to go with. All right. Aaron Babbitt, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Stay in touch. Sorry, uh, sorry all this happened. But to be continued, real, you bet. Real quick, Greg, I just want to thank you personally for um, addressing her in your book. It took a lot of fortitude, and I appreciate you always for that. It's an honor. Thank you, Aaron. And you. Uh, we'll stay in touch and I'll be right back. So that laptop, Hunter Biden, he lost it. He gave it up and it detailed his sordid life and potential corruption of his father. Came to light in October of 2020 and we had a right to know about it, but big tech kept it offline. And it looks like the Biden team, the FBI, the entire swamp may have had a big role in keeping this out of the voters' hands. There's a, an amazing lawsuit that's been in the works for some time now. Uh, the state of Missouri and the state of Louisiana versus essentially the Biden administration. And they're making progress. The Biden administration may have infringed on our First Amendment rights. I'd like to bring in the Attorney General for the state of Louisiana, Jeff Landry. Sir, welcome back to Newsmax. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on, on, on launching this thing and keeping it going. I've read a couple of the depositions. Fascinating stuff. Do, us, do me a favor, though. Give us the lay of the land and where do things stand right now in your lawsuit against Joe Biden? Well, look, let's take a step back. This case was brought by us to determine whether or not the federal government engaged in conduct that suppressed Americans' speech as those Americans debated policies that were affecting them. Greg, that's an important point because this is all about the First Amendment. I've said time and time again that this is the most important First Amendment case 
this century. Because if the government can go in and suppress American speech, basically pressure big tech to take down, to throttle back, to kick off Americans who are discussing the policies that affect them, that the government put in place, then we really don't have a democracy. I'd like to um, refer you, Counselor, to um, uh, Elvis Chan, an FBI agent out of the San Francisco office who was working closely with big tech. I believe we have uh, his picture. Uh, he was essentially embedded with big tech, the liaison between the FBI, the intelligence community, and big tech. And he had this to say about the 2020 election. Let's go ahead and roll that, please. FBI Special Agent Elvis Chan says the agency is always looking at what has happened in the past and applying it to the future. He says a lengthy review has determined that the 2020 election was the most secure in the nation's history. Like for 2020, we knew specifically the incidents that happened on a county by county level because there were so few of them. I could count them on one hand. Special Agent Chan says federal agencies have their eye on misinformation and election lies that often spread through social media. He says federal law enforcement agencies are sharing data with those social media platforms with the aim of combating election misinformation with the truth. People are trying to dispel the disinformation and misinformation that is going on, that there are things that are happening to the election. We don't see any credible threats at this point. That's not to say we're not monitoring them, because we are. So that's Elvis Chan. He works for the FBI. You guys deposed him. And it's a fascinating deposition, but those comments right there, that seems so wildly far afield from anything the FBI should be concerned with. Correct. Look, I think that of all the people we've deposed, and we've deposed some very interesting people like Dr. Fauci, I think that the Elvis Chan deposition gave us the greatest insight uh, to the conduct that the Federal Bureau of Investigation was engaged in in censoring American speech. Again, Greg, this is about information that the American public should be able to debate in the marketplace of ideas, in the public squares, in the virtual public squares of big tech, without the government telling big tech what they can post, what they can't post, who should be banned, who should be shadow banned, or who should be taken off. And by the way, the evidence that we've uncovered in Discovery shows that it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. If you don't agree with the government, you will be censored. You will be silenced. We found that even Robert Kennedy uh, was basically the White House, the Biden administration, you know, pressured Twitter to take Robert Kennedy off of Twitter because of some of the things that he was expressing during the pandemic. And that was the kind of relationship the FBI had with Twitter. Hey, we don't like these accounts. Take a look at them. We think they might be violating your terms of service, i.e., we want them taking down, and often Twitter would comply. By the way, Elvis Chan, who said everything was fine with the 2020 election, take a look at this from the deposition. It comes out that he is friends, this FBI agent, with Peter Strzok, worked with him extensively, and not only Peter Strzok, he worked with and still works with Lisa Page. And this is, and of course, these two, remember, they're the ones who said, uh, no, Trump won't win it, <laughs> won't win, we'll fix it, <laughs> we won't let it happen. Uh, was that a major aha moment? I, I think it's, I mean, it's circumstantial, whatever you could say, but man, that's pretty interesting.
Well, I think there's further in that deposition where you see Elvis Shan talk about a gentleman by the name of James Baker. That's an interesting character. So James Baker was the deputy consul at the FBI who was run out of the FBI because he was leaking information out of the bureau. Guess where he ends up? He ends up at Twitter, where Elvis Chan works with James Baker on censoring Americans. In addition, James Baker is also the guy who refused to follow Elon Musk's instructions when Musk took over Twitter and then wanted all of the information given out to the public. Baker was in there censoring or basically redacting that information. We find that out in this deposition that this Baker guy still worked for Twitter. Yeah. He no longer works there because Musk fired him. Right. Had it not been for our case, he would still be working at Twitter. A former FBI lawyer is sitting around Twitter saying, we should take President Trump's tweet off that says you shouldn't be afraid of COVID. He actually says that in an email. You sh he should not be saying that. <laughs> Some FBI no. drone saying it's, it's crazy stuff. You guys, uh, you're on to some fantastic findings here. Good luck. When's the next, uh, when's the next step? What happens next? Oh, well, look, just stay tuned because we're pouring through the discovery as uh, we speak, as this interview is conducted. And as we get information, we're posting that information out there so that the most important thing is that the American people can see the transparency, right. can see the conduct that the government engaged in to censor their speech. Louisiana and Missouri versus Joe Biden. I would definitely bet on Louisiana and Missouri. We appreciate it very much, sir. Many thanks. And we'll be right back. All I can say is, is that, that the fake news just doesn't, doesn't get, get it, do they? So, uh, January 6th, I was so focused on the McCarthy thing that uh, I missed most of the January 6th anniversaries. There were a lot, including at the White House, Joe Biden telling ghost stories about January 6th again. Thank you all very, very much. Hi. Two years ago, on January the 6th, our democracy was attacked. There's no other way of saying it. The U.S. Capitol was breached, which had never happened before in the history of the United States of America, even during the Civil War. A violent mob of insurrectionists assaulted law enforcement, vandalized uh, sacred <laughs> halls. A couple of things here. Did you notice how he was in a good mood? He was waving to the kids and stuff like that. Then he goes right in because it's like muscle memory at this point. And, of course, he's exaggerating and or lying about January 6th. There's been a bombing at the Capitol, multiple bombings of the Capitol. People have been shot inside the Capitol. Capitol Hill police officers have been shot and killed in the Capitol. Yeah, January 6th was the worst thing that ever happened. Um, this January 6th uh, ceremony had some interesting moments, though. Here's one of my favorites. If I can halt for a second and just say to you, the impact what happened on July the 6th had international repercussions beyond what I think any of you can fully understand. Two things, two things beyond what any of you could fully understand. He's talking to a bunch of adults. I think they can understand it. He's about to tell that story of, I said America's back, and they said, how long? That's a tall tale. And if it's true, Joe, you got owned by the Italian guy and the German guy and the French guy. Next, he said July 6th, not January 6th. Take a look at the guy behind him who hears the, the wrong date. Watch, watch what he does 
right when he says July 6th, what's going to uh, uh, July 6th? Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys hear that? Yes, we heard it too. Uh, what else happened? Ooh, Lady Ruby was acknowledged. She's some sort of an election worker from Georgia. Uh, this was um, a big moment, I guess. Take a look. Ruby Freeman. Inspired by the voting rights legacy of her beloved Atlanta, Lady Ruby Freeman viewed her civic duty as a Fulton County election worker as a sacred mission to ensure the people of Georgia could exercise their fundamental right, right. to vote freely and fairly. I'm not sure what she did or didn't do. I'm just saying Joe Biden gave a lot of gold medals to people who were poised, potentially, conceivably, to help him along in the election. Not saying that happened, but they were all positioned to do so if they wanted to. As far as Ruby and her daughter, uh, Shay, I don't think this is relevant, but the January 6th reporter made a big deal about it. They happen to both be black people, and I just don't know if that's relevant, and they kept on writing it as if it were. Why is that? Why is that? I don't understand. Nobody else's race was mentioned in the report uh, except, and also, uh, I'll say this about the, this woman. Listen to this. For my entire professional life, I was, can we put that up full, Lady Ruby. My community in Georgia where I was born and lived knew me as Lady Ruby. Now I won't even introduce myself by my name anymore. But she will go to the White House and stand on the stage. I think if you go around calling yourself lady, you may not have a firm understanding about how things work in the real world. I'm sorry. But, uh, and Joe got a little bit too close. Anyway, just one more of about a dozen and a half of these things, which are outrageous and they portray a very false vision of what America is. I'll be right back. Thank you so much, and we'll see you tomorrow night. All the best.